It's nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station here in beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where we have 55 degrees under overcast skies. Out at the airport, they are showing southeast winds to 6 miles per hour, 80% humidity, and 10 miles of visibility. Coming up on the Midday Report, Governor Mike Dunleavy made a quick trip to Kodiak over the weekend. He was signing bills into law. And a nonpartisan watchdog group has some problems with Governor Mike Dunleavy's re-election campaign. We'll find out more about that. And cultural education for Alaska Native students. There's a growing focus on it. We'll find out what one tribe is doing in Kenai. And a Ketchikan volleyball coach is facing assault charges after grabbing a player by the wrist at a game. Those stories and more after national headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The official portraits of the 44th President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama will now hang in the walls of the White House. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports President Biden hosted the former first couple for the unveiling today. Barack and Michelle, welcome home. In welcoming back the Obamas, President Biden also noted the countless contributions they made while in office. You will be considered one of the most consequential presidents in our history along with one of the most consequential first ladies. Calling his wife's portrait stunning, former President Obama said artist Sharon Sprung captured everything he loves about former first lady Michelle Obama. Her grace, her intelligence, and the fact that she's fine. (laughs) Obama jokingly referred to himself as a more difficult subject, but thanked the artist Robert McCurdy for doing a fantastic job with his portrait. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The U.N.'s nuclear watchdog says one of the few remaining backup power lines at Europe's largest reactor has been damaged by shelling. Ukraine's Zaporizhia plant has already lost all of its regular lines. It's managing to power the cooling systems needed to prevent a meltdown, but it's not clear how long that is sustainable. The U.N. agency is calling for a demilitarized zone around the plant occupied by Russia since March. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield tells NPR the U.S. wants Russia gone, too. We call on Russia, as we did yesterday in the council, uh, to remove their military presence from this, uh, this plant. They are responsible for creating uh, the dire conditions that uh, we're all watching and, and hoping uh, do not uh, develop. Ukraine says it may have to shut down the plant to avert a disaster and has called on area residents to evacuate. Investors expect the Fed to order another big interest rate hike when policymakers meet next. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. The Fed's latest survey of economic conditions around the country shows prices are still climbing too fast, especially for essentials like rent and electricity. Fed Vice Chairwoman Lael Brainerd says while gasoline prices have fallen, the cost of food continues to climb. 
She expects the central bank to raise interest rates and keep them up until policymakers are confident inflation's back under control. We're in this for as long as it takes to get inflation down. Our resolve is firm, our goals are clear, and our tools are up to the task. Brainerd welcomed the news that hundreds of thousands of people came off the sidelines last month and rejoined the workforce, but the Fed says the overall job market is still unusually tight. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow rose 438 points, the S&P climbed 72 points, the Nasdaq was up 246 points. You're listening to NPR News. Ang NPR Balita ay hatid sa inyo ng Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. Para sa kaukulang impormasyon tungkol sa aming mga serbisyo, tumawag lamang sa 481-2400. For KMXT, this is Terry Haynes. Governor Mike Dunleavy made a quick trip to Kodiak over the weekend. The governor was in town signing two bills into law. KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth reports the legislation was introduced by representatives from Kodiak. First of all, thank you for uh, uh, having me here today. It's always a pleasure to come to Kodiak. Beautiful place. Always sunny like it is today. Governor Dunleavy's first stop on Sunday was Kodiak High School, where he signed Senate Bill 20 into law. The legislation was sponsored by State Senator Gary Stevens. Stevens said the bill cuts red tape for teachers relocating to Alaska. Teachers from the lower 48 still need to meet certain state-specific requirements, but the bill extends reciprocity for valid teaching certificates from other states. And it also expedites the process of becoming an Alaska educator for active-duty military spouses who hold valid teaching certificates from another state. Speaking to a small crowd that included the superintendent of Kodiak School District and several teachers, including a group of recently arrived educators from the Philippines, Stephen said the bill was a step toward getting more teachers into the classroom. It faces the problem that we have uh, long had in our, in our school districts, uh, even here in Kodiak, and that's the shortage of teachers and, and, and also the barriers that we have built up over time uh, to entering into teaching. Later that afternoon and a few blocks away, the governor also signed House Bill 308 into law at Kodiak Senior Center. That bill, sponsored by House Speaker Louise Stutz, creates a full-time position and a dedicated program within the Department of Health to address early detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's and dementia. Stutz said the legislation raises awareness statewide for cognitive diseases. Hopefully someday there'll be a cure for Alzheimer's, but in the meantime... We need to pay attention, we need to educate our caregivers and the public and our first responders. Both bills overwhelmingly passed the House and the Senate at the end of the last legislative session back in May, and Stutes' bill goes into effect immediately. The next legislative session starts in January. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. A nonpartisan watchdog group says the campaign to re-elect Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy is coordinating with a super PAC supporting him. The Alaska Public Research Interest Group, or ACPERG, filed the complaint on Tuesday with the Alaska Public Offices Commission. It also alleges that the Dunleavy administration is using taxpayer funds to pay campaign staffers. Both actions are prohibited. The complaint centers on two longtime Dunleavy staffers, Brett Huber and Jordan Schilling. Ackberg says earlier this year, Huber simultaneously worked as a deputy treasurer on Dunleavy's campaign and managed activities for a Dunleavy-focused super PAC 
called a stronger Alaska. That kind of crossover is considered illegal coordination. Here's ACPIRG's attorney, Scott Kendall. The public has no idea whose money this is, and the ability to prevent corruption is gone because not only will this be anonymous money, but if it's anonymous money that the governor directly or indirectly gets to say how it's spent, campaign finance law at that point means nothing. At the same time, Huber was also a state contractor in the governor's office consulting on, quote, statehood defense, close quote, earning more than $8,000 a month. Schilling, who claims to work as an unpaid volunteer on the campaign, also has a state consulting contract earning $10,000 a month. Dunleavy spokesperson Jeff Turner says Huber ended his contract on June 1st, but Schilling's is still in effect. Dunleavy's campaign declined to comment for this story. Kendall is suspicious of both contracts. He says they look like they were set up to pay for campaign work using taxpayer money because they don't appear to have a clear purpose. You know, where's the deliverable? What are the list of meetings you took? Where are the memos you wrote? Um, you can't collect $10,000 just hanging out. Akperg is planning to submit an ethics complaint to the Alaska State Personnel Board in the next week regarding the alleged misuse of public funds. In the meantime, the group is hoping the Alaska Public Offices Commission takes action before November against the alleged appearance of super PAC coordination. That could include dissolving the super PAC or putting a freeze on its activities. Based on Dunleavy's campaign finance disclosures, the complaint says his campaign has only spent about $6,000 paying campaign staff this election cycle. By comparison, his 2018 campaign for governor spent more than $50,000 on staff contracting and consulting fees. Throughout Alaska's history, cultural education for Alaska Native students has not only been discouraged, but systematically suppressed, stifling efforts to pass on language and tradition from one generation to the next. But today, cultural education is a huge and growing focus of the Kanaitse Indian tribe in Kenai, and it's hoping it can, it can expand its programming even more now with the brand new educational campus. Licia Blizzard from the Kenaitse Tribal Council says the campus would have made elders like her father really proud. And education was so important to them because many of our elders didn't have an education, maybe just first grade through sixth grade or something, but they didn't ever have a chance to go to college. Or... So this was very important for our future. So they um, they can rest easy and know that we have accomplished it. The tribe has been working for the last two years on the new building on the corner of the Kenai Spur Highway and Forest Avenue. It's called the Katnatana Dedildit Campus, which is Denina for the Kenai River People's Learning Place. It houses classrooms and conference spaces with a large playground and obstacle course out back. The tribe held a formal dedication for the new building Thursday, less than a week before it'll open to students on September 7th. A drum circle played the bear song as community members got a first look at the new space. Bernadine Atchison is chair of Kenaitse's Tribal Council. She says along with wellness and food security, education is one way the tribe can make sure its 1,700 members survive and thrive. 
The tribe already sponsors educational programming for over 300 students, including summer camps and its Head Start and Early Head Start programs for young families and kids. I think right now the, the significance is that we have all of our learning um, programs under one roof. She says the location of the building itself is important, too. When you go across the street to the National Guard, they have some of our ancient sites, but also we're close to the beach. So it's just a walk down, and you could see our mountains. So it's a very culturally historic area. Peter Yvonne is the tribe's new head of tribal administration. He says the 67,000-square-foot space is an exciting chance for the tribe to expand. Being able to grow into a facility like this that has that space, that we have a great kitchen, we have other aspects that we'll be able to incorporate into the facility. But, um, yeah, just, I mean, everything that we can kind of put together with everything that is needed, not only for the tribe but for the culture and, and preserving that. So. And for our community, too. Atchison points to a room in the back with big windows and tables. When we harvest a moose, we could bring it in there. And we have the windows so people can watch if they want and, and learn. And so this here offers so many more opportunities than what we had before. The tribe has already started expanding its language programming. The new Denina Language Institute is the latest iteration of an ongoing project to celebrate and revitalize Denina culture and language, including lessons for staff. And right now that's becoming a bigger part because we had some language in our in our classes like Head Start and Early Head Start and Yaganan, but now we're actually getting ready to print some books that are in Denina language. And so there's gonna, language is a bigger component. Educators with the new institute have also been working on language resources for the public, like an audio dictionary of Denina words and phrases. The tribe is also working on expanding its in-school programming along with the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District, thanks to a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. In Kenai, I'm Sabine Pooks. A Ketchikan volleyball coach and teacher is facing assault charges after allegedly grabbing a player by the wrist at a game last week. KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. A 17-year-old Ketchikan High School volleyball player is alleging that Kevin Johnson grabbed them by the wrist at a Thursday game in the school gym. Johnson is the coach of the Lady Kings volleyball team and the school's physical education teacher. The student says that Johnson squeezed their wrist and pulled them in his direction. Eric Matson, the deputy chief of the Ketchikan Police Department, read aloud to KRBD on Friday the probable cause statement in the case in which Johnson is facing charges of fourth-degree assault and second-degree harassment. Uh, Mr. Johnson chastised the juvenile for uh, the player's manner of playing and refused to let the juvenile go uh, after uh, this juvenile told him to let go. Uh, Mr. Johnson disengaged by forcefully pushing the hands of the juvenile away. Mr. Johnson's actions caused the juvenile pain uh, in the risks and fear of what may happen next. Matson says the case was assigned to the K High School resource officer, Charlie Johnson, of no relation to the coach, who is in the department's detective bureau. Online court filings show that Johnson was issued a summons to appear in court the day after the incident. Johnson declined to comment on the interaction when speaking to KRBD on Tuesday. Um, I, have, uh, I have secured an attorney, and I will be pleading not guilty. Johnson's arraignment is scheduled for Thursday with Ketchikan District Court Judge Kevin Miller. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Two Homer teenagers in full-length wetsuits recently plunged into the cold waters of Ketchikan Bay to go on a miles-long swim. 
To complete their goal, they'd have to navigate punishing temperatures and swift tidal currents. KBVI's Simon Lopez takes us there. It's 5.30 on a dark morning You're in August when Skylar Rodriguez and Lee Brustanek set off from Haystack Beach, located across the bay from Homer toward the point of the Homer Spit, adorned in full-length wetsuits. It's a voyage covering roughly half of Catchmack Bay's width. Rodriguez describes the total distance they traveled as more complex than just point A to point B on a map when factoring in several other variables. Counting for current, and we went in straight line. Exact a little bit, about four-ish, four-ish miles. Local water temperatures reach dangerous lows, and the highs aren't much better. If hypothermic symptoms set in, they could impair motor function and drain energy. Rodriguez and Rustad were born and bred in Homer, and both have held an affinity for swimming at various times in their lives, and this time they wanted to push themselves. To prepare for the strenuous distance and the low temperatures they would experience during the swim, the teens worked to acclimate themselves ahead of time. They began their training last year when the trip was originally set to take place, but health issues prompted the teams to delay the swim until this year. Looking back, they say more training may have made things easier. We did a couple swims hugging the coast of the spit, two-mile swims, three-mile swims. We trained along, just swimming along the side of the spit. We just try different tide times, try to swim along different areas so, so we very are familiar with the water. Ideally, we would have tried to condition ourselves a little more. This was their first attempt at swimming the entire route from one side of the bay to the other. Along with training, the trip also required additional precautions to ensure their safety. The pair were joined by a four-person support crew to monitor them and ensure other boats didn't get too close. We had kayakers that went right next to us. We yeah. had supplies. We had backpacks with certain foods, and we yeah. had hot tea. And um, we took a, about a five- or ten-minute break halfway through. Around uh, 1.8 miles, we stopped, and we just had a bit of hot tea, you know, maybe a little bit of food just to... Yeah, so just turn it into water beside the kayak, and they hand you your water bottle, drink it as far aside. Rodriguez and Rustad say they couldn't have done it without them. They completed their nearly four-mile-long journey in about three hours, and although they faced a few challenges, they finished without any major problems. I'd say around the last quarter mile for me, at least, um, my muscles were pretty cold, so I was uh, cramping up a bit. But besides from that, endurance-wise, I, I was fine. I felt pretty good. Energy was good. For our swim, since we started at around Haystack Beach and we're on our way as approaching towards Homer uh, Lens End, we ended up uh, battling a lot of current in specific areas. I know like when we're passing Goal Island and we were in the last stretch, until we hit the spit, there was a lot of current, so we'd be swimming for what felt like a lot, and then we'd look over and we'd still see Goal Island just as close. Rodriguez and Rustad say even as they were pulling themselves out of the water at the end of their trip, the feeling of accomplishment hadn't yet set in. It wasn't until hours later that they felt the weight of their accomplishment. Reporting in Homer, I'm Simon Lopez. Today's KMXT Local News is brought to you in part by Discover Kodiak, a one-stop source for visitor information on Kodiak and other destinations around the state. On the web at kodiak.org and at the Visitor Center in the Ferry Terminal Building at 100 Marine Way, 486-4782. Insight Daily Radio.
From food to fashion, science to tech talk, or for just plain fun, we've got you covered. From the art of all things, here's Lasana Jeffries. By the 1920s, researchers were just about ready to throw in the towel regarding that straightforward question. What's your favorite color? People's answers appeared far too idiosyncratic to study in any substantive way. But as statistical tools and color standardization improved during the decades that followed, a pattern slowly but surely began to emerge. Everyone liked blue. Studies show that a person's preference for a given color can be determined by the averaging out of how much that person likes all the objects they associate with that color. Your inclination for orange, for example, depends on how you feel about pumpkins and traffic cones and Cheetos. It turns out, if you look at all the things that are associated with blue, they're mostly positive. Let's face it, it's really hard to think of a negative blue thing. We associate blue largely with the sky and water. What's more, those associations aren't limited to a certain region of the globe. Clear sky and clean water especially are things that we all experience universally. No matter where you are in the world, if it's a clear, sunny day when it's nice to be outside, the sky is blue and water that's clear is going to be bluish. That's not to say that there aren't cultural differences because there are. But this prevalence of positive blue things seems to be somewhat consistent because While the majority of people do prefer blue, there's also a significant chunk of the population who most like red or green. The critical part of this is that it's not any one thing that precedes preferences for color. It's the summary of all the things that we've experienced in our lifetime. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisana Jeffries. Insight Daily Radio. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon, and welcome to your Island Messenger for Wednesday. It is the 7th day of September, the year 2022. The sun rose today at 723. It will set again at 850. That will give us 13 hours and 27 minutes of daylight a loss of 4 minutes and 54 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record low for this date was 38 degrees. That was set in 1988, 1992, and 2004. And our record high was 69 degrees set in 2018. Currently 55 degrees under overcast skies. It's been 55 degrees all day long. Out at the airport, they are registering southeast winds to 6 miles per hour, 80% humidity, and 10 miles of visibility. The weather service is calling for rain for the rest of the afternoon. High near 57, south winds to 15. Rain tonight too, 100% chance of it. South winds to 25 overnight tonight with a low of 54. And for tomorrow, rain is likely in the morning, mainly before 7 a.m. Mostly cloudy skies tomorrow with a high near 60, south winds to 20. And just a 30% of showers on Thursday night. Cloudy skies becoming partly cloudy, low of 48. Mostly sunny skies on Friday with a high near 58. Looking at our local tides, we have a high tide coming up here on the east side. That will happen at 108 this afternoon and be 6.9 feet. Followed by a low tide at 6.14 p.m. of 2.8 feet. Over on the west side, 
Your high tide will happen at 1.31 this afternoon. That will be an 11.8-foot tide in Larson Bay. Your next low tide will be at 7.10 p.m. and be 3.7 feet. Well, let's see the short but very recent message from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement number 36, date issued 10 a.m. on September 7th. There will be a 54-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Saturday, September 10th until 6 p.m. Monday, September 12th in the following areas. In the east side Kodiak district, except for the inner Ugak and outer Ugak Bay sections remain closed. The outer Ikulik, Halibut Bay, Sturgeon, and outer Carlock sections of the southwest Kodiak district in the central and north cape sections of the northwest Kodiak district. As previously announced, fishermen are reminded that until further notice, in that portion of the northwest and southwest Kodiak district south of the latitude of Cape Kuliak, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by Persang gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed in commercial salmon fishing regulations and statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recorder phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing, and this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Mariners, be aware we do have a gale warning tonight. For Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side. Southwest 15 will become south 30 this afternoon. Seas building to 9 feet this afternoon. For tonight, south 40. Seas 13 feet building to 18 feet after midnight. And for tomorrow on our east side, southwest 30. Seas to 17 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, small craft advisory for tonight and Thursday. East 20 this afternoon in the Shelikoff. Seas to 3 feet. East 30 tonight, becoming south 25 late, seas to 7 feet. And for tomorrow in the Shelikoff, southwest 30, seas to 9 feet, building to 10 feet on Thursday night. The Kodiak Arts Council will be having its annual meeting tomorrow. That's happening at 6 p.m. at the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium Coral Pod. You can hear reports from the board, staff, and member organizations and vote in the election of directors to the Arts Council Board. If you've been looking for a way to get involved with Arts and Kodiak, come by their annual meeting and see what the Arts Council is all about. For more information, call 907-942-5840 or just show up at the meeting Thursday, 6 p.m. at the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium Coral Pod. The City Council will be holding a regular meeting tomorrow as well. That's happening at 7.30 p.m. in the Kodiak Public Library. The meeting is open to the public, and public members are also encouraged to tune in here at KMXT on 100.1 FM. The meeting will also be web-streamed, and that link and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. If you have any other questions, contact the City Clerk at 907-486-8636. The Pillar Creek Salmon Hatchery here in Kodiak is looking for volunteers for their remote egg takes in September. There will be one egg take per week from September 7th through September 27th. So today was their first. They need three or four volunteers per egg take. It's an all-day volunteer opportunity to take part in a remote sockeye salmon egg take at Saltery Lake for the Kodiak Regional Aquaculture Association and the Pillar Creek Hatchery. 
float plane flight, lunches, and drinks are all provided to volunteers to take part in the egg take. The work take usually lasts between 7.30 a.m. until late afternoon, depending on the success of operations. Volunteers can be provided with waders and boots if needed since they are necessary. Contact Al Seal at 907-486-4730 for more information. The Hospice and Palliative Care of Kodiak is hosting an eight-week grief recovery method program that's running every Wednesday starting September 7th. That's today. The first one starts at 730, 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. today, and that's happening in the multi-purpose room in the Kodiak Public Library. It's a chance to learn effective tools for how to process feelings of pain and loss while also learning how to live with grief in a manageable way. It'll be done with an interactive and supportive environment and facilitated by qualified grief specialists. Space is limited, so please call them up at 907-512-0600 or visit their website at www.hpck.org. That begins tonight at 530 in the multipurpose room in the library. Things happening at the Kodiak Public Library also include... The Lego Club is happening this afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Kids under 10 should be accompanied by an adult. On Thursdays at 10.30 a.m., the library hosts a lap-sit story time for babies 0 to 3 and their adults. Join volunteer Abby Hanna to share a story and a song with some quality time to play and socialize. For more information, contact the Kodiak Public Library at 486-8686. The annual Kindness Milk Run is coming up this Saturday, September 10th. This is Pick Your Distance Fun Run is a family and dog-friendly event. It starts with a foot race at Woody Way Field for toddlers and preschoolers. Then load up your strollers and strap on your sneakers to walk or run one, two, or three-mile routes. Enjoy milk and cookies after you finish. Find the link to pre-register online on the Kodiak Kindness Facebook page or simply show up on race day at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday. Individual entries are $15 and families are $35. All proceeds go to benefit the Kodiak Kindness Project, a 501c nonprofit that provides free infant feeding education through the first year of life for Kodiak families. Business donations are being matched by Credit Union One. If you know a local business that would like to donate, they can call 907 539 2660 or visit the Kodiak Kindness website. Kindness is a grantee of the Kodiak Community Foundation, and they encourage you to attend the Foundation's downtown block party on September 10th, that's this Saturday as well, after warming up at the Milk Run. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the Midday Report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.